Well, thank you for being here today and for praying for me over this past week in my preparation for this morning's message here in Mark. I don't know if any of you took the time to read the passage ahead of time, either individually or as a family unit, but I found the context of these 17 verses to not only be very convicting to me as I studied through them, but they were also very beneficial as I tried to apply them in my own life. It's interesting how God orchestrates for the elders the messages and how almost every time it's so applicable for the person that's actually doing the speaking. Such was the case in this message. There, there's so much contained in these scriptures. However, God seemed to impress upon me one word as I began to determine a focal point or a theme to center my sermon around. And what was that one word? Temptation. T-E-M-P-T-A-T-I-O-N. A word that only appears 23 times in the Bible and yet is referenced throughout it. And I would say it's a word that we as Christians must fully understand and fully grasp as we seek to walk in the ways of the Lord. So let's, let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for this text that we're going to look at this morning. Thank you for your holy word, Lord, that it contains the truth, the truth that we need as your children to walk in this world we walk in. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be able to present in a way that people understand, that honors you. I pray in turn that those that are listening, both here and online, would really be able to grasp what these scriptures are saying, particularly as it relates to temptation. So thank you for each person here. Just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What is temptation? Actually, the first thing when I started this, the first thing that came to my mind was donuts. <laughs> Everybody likes donuts. And every week, almost every week at my office, a vendor drops by donuts. And they sit right outside my desk on the counter. I hear all the employees as they come up and they study the donuts and talk about them. Those that say, boy, that one was yummy. I'm going to have another. And then those who say, I shouldn't eat one. I'm not going to eat one today. And then often within a few minutes, I see them come back. (laughs) Temptation gets the best of them. How would you define it? The dictionary says the desire to do or have something that you know you should not do or have. Another source defined it like this, the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. One Bible scholar summarized it like this, a temptation is most often an ordeal or trial of being tested, tempted. Someone or something is used by God in the test to refine our holiness with Satan at times, but not always being allowed by God to tempt us. Another commentator, being confronted with temptation is the act of being tested, tempted, and is a fact of everyday living in this world we live in. 
in the context of Christianity, temptation is the inclination to sin. If we look at God's word, we see the first occurrence of temptation is found in the initial seven verses of Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent, Satan himself, successfully tempts the first woman, Eve, and the first man, Adam, to sin. And following that, the Bible tells us of many, many other temptations, whether it be the nation Israel, the mighty Samson, the patriarch David, and even the New Testament apostles, all falling into sin through temptation. So suffice it to say, temptation exists for every single one of us. The question becomes, will those temptations lead us to sin? We know such testing is good for us, for in James 1, 2-4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations or various trials, knowing this, that the trying or testing of your faith worketh patience, and let patience have her perfect work. James 1, again, 12-15, tells us that blessed is the man that endureth temptation, or remains steadfast under trial. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, his desires, and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And we all know from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. All familiar verses telling us the significance of remaining steadfast when tempted yet what is the key in doing so? That is what we will learn from this passage this morning. The importance of walking wisely. For we are told in verse 38, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. So I called this message, Walking Wisely in Times of Temptation. And I actually divided into two sections The first one being verses 26 through 31. So follow along as I read those to you. 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will I not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake more, the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. I call this first section, Resting in the Flesh. As we begin in verse 26, we find Christ and the disciples singing hymns as they went out into the Mount of Olives. It was interesting, Dave brought that up in the initial comments. 
Probably we don't think often of Jesus as one who sings a lot. Yet it's confirmed here that he and others lifted their voices in adoration and worship to God the Father. Spurgeon said this, It is remarkable that Jesus could sing on this night before his crucifixion. Could you sing in such circumstances? Surely if Jesus leads a tune, if there would be any silent ones in the Lord's family, they must begin to praise the name of the Lord. Unquote. As I read that, I thought, what happens if I don't feel like singing? Say I'm having a bad morning, so I'm not going to lift up my voice in song. Honestly, ever had one of those Sunday mornings? Certainly our song leaders would recognize your lack of participation, and of course, God himself would see your silence. I guess in light of the passage we're looking at today, my question would be, are you dealing with anything in your life more severe than what our Lord was facing? Yet he continued to sing and praise God, and that we should do as well. So what were they singing? Well, as Kent covered last week in the message, the Passover meal always ended with singing three psalms known as the Hallel, which was contained in Psalms 116 to 118. And I won't take the time to read each of those psalms to you, but they are filled with things like praise the Lord for deliverance from death, praise the Lord that he endures forever, be thankful for the Lord's salvation. So they were singing And then we move to verse 27, where Christ quotes a verse from Zechariah 13, 7, telling his disciples that they will be offended, or rather they will stumble this night, for the great shepherd Christ himself will be struck down, and the disciples will be scattered, or they'll fall away. I I looked up the Greek word for fall away here. It's scandalizo, which means to fall into a trap or to come to one's end. Hopefully you remember this is not the first time that Christ had told his disciples, and specifically Peter, that he would forsake him. But in this particular account we're studying today, it is Peter whose emotions got the best of him. Even though Christ goes on in verse 28 to tell them that this would not spell the end of their relationship, for he would have victory over death and would meet them later in Galilee, it apparently falls on deaf ears, especially Peter's. For if you look, we see in verse 29, Peter boldly protests by stating, although everyone else shall be offended and fall away, yet will not I. It is in this statement that in essence Peter fell into the trap of temptation. For he was resting in his own flesh, and Christ knows this, for he goes on in verse 30 to tell Peter that at this day, even in this night, before the rooster crows twice, thou shalt deny me three times. To which Peter speaks in verse 31 even more vehemently, or the ESV says more emphatically, if I should die with thee, I will not, I will never deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. I said at the beginning of the message, if there's a key verse in this passage we're studying, it's found in verse 38, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But it says, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh 
is a week. Certainly Peter's protest was indeed presumptuous. Why? Because he was relying or resting in his own strength, his own flesh. There are four things that I see here that confirm the fact that Peter was protesting in his own flesh. The first, it contradicted the words of Christ. Secondly, it displayed an attitude of self-confidence and pride. Thirdly, it showed Peter's true heart and how by nature our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And then fourthly, it led to his fall, for he was relying on his flesh. So let's try to practically apply this. Ask yourself, have you ever said this statement to anyone? Say to your spouse, or a parent, or one of your children, or a close friend, or a business associate, or even God himself. I will never, you fill in the blank, I will never do that. Or I will never do this. I would caution you on using that phrase. For like Peter, we too possess the same fleshly attributes and attitudes he had. Had we been there that night? I asked myself, had I been there that night? I would have been just as guilty of falling like he did. And that's what happens when you rest in yourself. For if you think about it, it's so easy to see the failures of others thinking you are stronger, you are better, you're more wiser, you're more experienced. Like me, I'm more mature, or should be. Therefore, I would never do that. And yet we don't realize or take into consideration that if it weren't for the, the grace of God, the Holy Spirit within us, we are capable of the very same response. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. It is so easy to give in to temptation and fall into disastrous sin. Interesting, I looked up what some of the most common temptations are in America. Number one, 60% of Americans are living in a state of noticeable and deep debilitating temptation due to anxiety or worry about life itself. And the poll said the younger you are, the more probable it is you are stuck in this rut of worry. Number two, 55% are often overwhelmed by the temptation to eat too much. Just like my donut illustration, the temptation to overeat can be a real issue. Number three, 44% of Americans admit that they face temptations to overuse electronics and social media such as Facebook, Instagram, video games, surfing the web, and television. Again, young people are almost twice as likely than the older generation to become addicted to online activities. 41% of Americans said they've often fallen into temptation of being lazy or not working hard as reasonably expected. I found it interesting for this one that all generations fall into this category when it comes to this temptation. No doubt slothfulness and certainly selfishness are core sins within humankind. 
worry, overeating, social media, laziness. These are some of the areas of temptation listed. But, but what about the ones that these kinds of surveys don't pick up because people aren't honest, they don't admit them? Things like anger or gossip or lying, pornography, or just lust in itself. As 1 John 2.16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Sadly, human temptation has so many variables, versions, and combinations that no list could contain them all. I want you to turn to Galatians 5. I'm going to read a few passages. I'm going to put them up here on the board if you just want to follow. But if you look in your Bible at Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth after the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Paul goes on to tell us specifically in Ephesians 5, 15-16, See then that ye walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. As I end this section, I just want to give you a few specific points to consider in your own life in light of Peter's failure through resting in his flesh. And I would summarize these thoughts like this. To walk wisely... And not give in to temptation, you must know what dangers to avoid. Three things. First, unwise people, fools, are oblivious to the evil all around them. In the world I grew up in not that many years ago, it was forbidden to see inappropriate sexual scenes or hear the use of any profanity on television or even at the movies And people dress so much more modestly than they do now. But now it's hard to witness any form of entertainment that is not filled with filth, immodesty, and vile language. It's the catastrophic evil times we're living in. Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scoffers or the scornful. Simply put, unwise people are those that ignore such warning found in God's word and instead they, they flirt 
with temptation. While Christ teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, many believers play around with such evil as if it was a toy. Yet in reality, it's a, it's a loaded gun. It's a really personal question. You need to ask yourself, are you flirting with any temptation in your life? If you are, I just say beware, for sin is just around the corner. Number two, unwise people, fools, adopt the world's systems of morals and values. All of you have probably experienced the fact that when you're around a bad odor for any period of time, your smell actually adjusts such that you no longer smell it anymore. An example is if you walk into a room filled with natural gas, you, you immediately smell it. But if you're in a room for any duration that has that gas, after a while you don't smell it at all. But there are devastating consequences. The same holds true as we live in these evil times where if you aren't careful, after a while you don't even notice how rotten and sinful things, sinful things have become. Such it is that seemingly many, many so-called Christians and even mainline denominational churches have absorbed the world's value all around them. Changes like it's, it's now okay to live outside of marriage, live together, especially if it saves money. Or divorce is okay. We want to be happy, right? Even the change to tolerate homosexuality because Christians don't want to be labeled as intolerant. Such change happens so slowly, one small step at a time, so oblivious that it's often even undetectable. And the result, Christians begin to look and act just like the world because they've forsaken the absolute truth that God commands in his holy word. Thirdly, Unwise people, fools, live for temporal fulfillment and pleasure. In the Bible, especially in Proverbs, fools live for immediate gratification according to their, their feelings, their impulses, and their desires. Fools pursue the lust of the flesh by gratifying their physical desires. Fools pursue the lust of the eyes by seeking material gain and beauty. And they pursue the pride of life in striving for status, importance, and of course, power. Fools like the rich man building bigger barns to store his goods do not stop to realize the fact that today could be your last. And then they will face God in eternal judgment. For fools, there is never a thought about storing up treasures in heaven, for their focus is completely on the here and now. And God is nowhere in their endeavors. Danger. It's, it's all around. I hope you see it. And I hope you're not unwise by resting in the flesh and walking straight into sin. Instead, we want to be walking wisely by resting in the Spirit. And that is found in this next section. So follow along as I read verses 32 through 42. 
And they came to a place which is named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground, and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh a third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. I call this second section, Resting in the Spirit. As we begin this section, we see here in verse 32 that Christ and his disciples arrive at Gethsemane, located on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. When I looked up a little about Gethsemane, the word itself means olive press. For the town of Gethsemane was actually a place where olives from the neighboring communities were crushed for their oil. The parallel is so interesting when you think about Christ's crucifixion. For the Son of God himself would also be crushed here as well. It was at this junction of the journey that with the exception of Peter and James and John, Christ told the rest of his disciples to stay while he would go ahead and pray. I like how one author described the scene. Jesus could have left the disciples in the upper room or sent them ahead, but he brought them with him and asked them to remain nearby. Jesus bore the nature of a man, and people need companionship. God created us for relationships, not only with himself, but with other people. Thus, as Jesus faced that long, torturous night, he invited his closest friends to come with him and join him in prayer. It is then in verse 33 that we learn that Christ began to be sore amazed and very heavy. Another translation says he was greatly troubled and deeply distressed. Christ knew what his Father's will was, yet he still endured such agony. Commentators mostly agree that it was not so much the horror of the physical death that awaited him, but it was the spiritual horror of the cross, of being made sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was at this point in verse 34 that he tells Peter and James and John that his soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death, and he instructs them to tarry there and watch, or keep watch, or be on the alert, which is basically the idea to be ready for the inevitable. Now I want you to pay particular attention to verses 35 and 36. For as Christ moves on a bit and then humbles himself by falling to the ground to pray, it is here that we see Christ as a man, fully human, but resting in the Spirit. I believe this to be the only instance in Scripture where we see the Son's will struggling with the will of his Father. It is this setting that the humanity of Christ is on full display. 
For as humans, it is so easy to highlight and focus on the divinity of Christ while downplaying his humanity, yet we see it so clearly here. As Christ asked that the hour might pass from him, he felt so close to his father that he cried out, Abba, Father, a child's familiar name for his daddy. And then the words in verse 36, All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, and that's the key word there, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. We see in this moment a powerful desire to avoid the cross. And he asked his father to let this cup pass from him. One commentator said this, Christ struggled with the temptation to avoid the personal injustice of bearing God's wrath for the world's sin. After all, why should he have to suffer on behalf of sinners like you and me? Yet even in this moment of deep distress and his deeply moved prayers, the father did not take the cup from Christ, but instead strengthened Christ to be able to take and drink that cup. There was no other way. So Christ went to the cross. I like what another author said. Repeatedly in the Old Testament. The cup is a powerful picture of the wrath and judgment of God. Jesus became as it were an enemy of God. Who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury. So that we would not have to drink from that cup. Still another scholar, Christ rested in the spirit and in doing so the struggle of the cross was won at the garden of Gethsemane. Sadly, at this great moment of agony, Christ was alone. For when he came back to disciples in verse 37, there was no support of prayer at all. Simon Peter Sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Again, notice how Christ directed his words to Peter, who boldly in the flesh had previously said he could resist any attack. And here we find him not resisting the temptation of sleep. Christ goes on in the verse 38 to say, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. As I said earlier, for me, this was the key verse in this entire section of Scripture. Christ knew Peter would fail, yet he encouraged him to victory, knowing that the resources to resist temptation are found by resting in the spirit, by watching and by praying. And then again, it happens again. In verse 39 and 40, the pattern repeats. Christ felt the continual onslaught of temptation, so he retreated again to pray, and he prayed the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy as they had given into temptation. And then in verse 41, we learn this was repeated even a third time. Three times Christ prayed. Three times the disciples slept. It was then in verses 41 and 42 that Christ announced that the hour had come. The time was at hand. Rise up and let us go, for Judas was there to betray him. One pastor concluded this section by saying, Christ emerged the victor over temptation. Adam had given into temptation and dragged all humanity into the slavery of sin. Here Christ triumphed, and through his obedience made a way for humanity to approach God, to find release from bondage of sin, and to be lifted up from depravity. 
The struggle ended when he emerged from the twisted shadows of the Garden of Gethsemane, fully resolute to complete his mission. As I conclude today, I want to leave you with three additional points to consider. When I covered the first section, I said to walk wisely and not give in to temptation, you must know what dangers to avoid. I want to end with to walk wisely and not give in to temptation, you know what you must know what duties to pursue. Number one, be godly. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or as maybe many of you children have learned in your catechism, the, first, the very first one, the chief end of man. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What does it mean to be godly? It means that, to glorify God and exalt His name in everything you do. It's not patting yourself on the back for your accomplishments or, or resting in your own strength, but a realization that everything you do and all that you have is because of God's doing. It's thinking and acting in ways that reflect His greatness while demonstrating your gratefulness. And as I read earlier, it's pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. We, we just glance over these fruit. and We should really take these to heart. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Glorify God by walking worthy. Number two, be alert. Watch and pray. I know all of you have heard the phrase, sleeping on the job. I brought my pillow. What would you think if I just laid my head down here and went to sleep? Actually, at my employment, we've had to discipline and even terminate people for sleeping on the job. It's sad when you think of the disciples falling asleep not once, not twice, but three times after Christ himself had instructed them, watch ye and pray. Again, I ask myself, would I have fallen asleep? In my flesh, I would have said, never, never would I fall asleep if Christ had asked me to watch and pray. And yet, I probably would have. In the flesh. We know God will not allow any testing to be beyond what we are able to bear according to 1 Corinthians 10.13. And he will always provide a way of escape. So why do we fail? My conclusion is we have to realize we can't do it in our own strength. We, we cannot. Our flesh is weak and we will fail. Our only hope is resting in the Spirit, which means it leads me to the last point. Be Spirit-led. For the Spirit truly is ready. 
Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking at all about some extra so-called charismatic experience you need to seek that some might label as the Holy Spirit baptism. The Holy Spirit residing within you is something you have from the very moment you are saved. And if you're sitting here today and you aren't converted, you aren't saved, you don't know the Lord, you don't have this Holy Spirit. You don't have this residing in you, this power to overcome temptation in the flesh. To be led, or to be spirit-led, is the idea of yielding moment by moment to the leading of the Holy Spirit. It fits perfectly with the process of walking by the Spirit, as I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 5.15. See then that you walk circumspectively or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And then it goes on in verse 17. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, or in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. My Bible says in the footnotes here, the analogy between these two morals is this. A person filled with wine is under its influence. Similarly, a Christian is filled with the Spirit when he controls his thoughts, attitudes, and actions. In other words, he or she knows the will of God through reading God's word, through extended prayer, and by resting in the spirit and not in the flesh. Are you spirit-led? Are you relying on the Holy Spirit? Today as we depart, I want to encourage you that even though the flesh is weak, God's Spirit is ready and able to help you overcome the flesh and give you victory. I know today, this week, every single one of you will face some sort of temptation. My prayer is that God would help you to see it as a temptation and that you would rely on the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would help you to see the significance of walking and resting in Him and not walking and resting in the flesh. So let's pray. Father, thank You for Christ. What an example. What an example. Fully man and yet resisting temptation. Lord, thank You for giving us the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would rely on the Spirit and not on the flesh, Lord. How often, how often have I failed because I've relied on the flesh and not on the Spirit. Father, I pray that you would really work in each of our hearts, give us strength and Thank you for the mighty power uh, that you've put within us. I pray, Lord, if there are those here today who are battling with certain areas in their life, that they would realize the need to pursue you first, but realize the need to just put their complete um, strength in the Holy Spirit and not themselves. So thank you for what this scripture has taught us today. In Christ's name, amen.